0: Uh, welcome, everyone, to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib, and uh, today we have a great company. Australian legend Mark Woodford joining us from Seoul, Korea. Welcome, Mark. How are you? Saqib, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, very nice to be here talking with you. You are in Seoul. Just fill us up. What What are you up to? I know you're with Vasek Paspasal. So, what brings you to Seoul?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm I'm here uh, actually just just close by to Seoul. Uh, um, he's playing a challenger tournament in Kimcheon, um, which is a, a small town, um, just uh, probably about an hour and a half uh, from Seoul. Um, and he's yeah just playing a challenger tournament this week. Next week uh, we do move to Seoul. There's another challenger tournament there. Um, so I'm I'm here for two weeks with him before. I go back to uh, California where I'm based, um, where my wife and kids are, and then uh, you head over to the French Open and, you know, the grass court tournament. So, you know, the season feels like it's it's really just about to start, um, you know, some of those major tournaments. But for the moment, um, here in South Korea with, with Vashek.
0: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I know uh, we follow a lot of players and uh, a lot of retired players. That's their biggest uh, gripe is uh, if they want to come back to coaching and they all are settled in their lives. So, what makes you take this job? I know it requires a lot of travel. You are already helping him out at a Challenger tour. So, what's the arrangement like, and why you took the job?
1: I was interested. I've always been interested in, you know, in coaching. Um, I think when I when I first retired from the sport, my my instinct, my gut reaction was that I just I just wanted to have time away from the sport, Um, and I kept the only link that I that I kept. Alive at that time was comment, uh, commentating, and I worked for an Australian network, um, Channel Nine Australia, and I was commentating alongside of John Newcomb and Fred Stolle and an American guy called Tony Trabert, who was a number one player in the world uh, in his time. And um, yeah, I, I really, I in the in the end, I I just loved uh, the commentary side. And it, it just helped, um, keep my interest in the sport that had, you know, had been so dear to me. Um, and it, it just enabled the juices, the, the love to rekindle for the sport. And I, I guess in a way, I had al- al- always, uh, anticipated moving back into the sport, so to speak, as a coach. I, I, I felt like that I had a bit to offer with my experience and, um, uh, I, I, you know, it was it was just a slow transition into the into the coaching side. So I've had a few different gigs along the way, and probably last year, if we, I, I guess, fast forward quickly to last year, I was actually working with um, Nicholas Mahout, um, the French player who um, is a is a great singles player and uh, doing even better in doubles. And he'd asked me to, to, if I was interested, to work with him for a certain amount of weeks, which I was. Um, and I, I guess I was looking for um, a player that had a similar type of game to what uh, to the to the way that I played. Um, and it's not to say that I, I wouldn't be interested in coaching a European baseliner who loves to play on clay and doesn't go to net. I think that would be fantastic. Uh, a, a great gig to take on as well but it, it certainly um i think makes my lot job as a coach a little easier if that player um i have a certain understanding if they're wanting to try and be aggressive uh, play attacking tennis and so i had a, a, a great run with um with Mahout and um about middle of last year i um you, you know had seen vashek play uh numerous times and had Started to wonder what on earth was going on with his game because 2016 was a pretty dismal year for uh, for Pospisil. Um His ranking was going down very very quickly, and um, you know he's he's certainly been one of a handful of players that, as a TV commentator, I had really um, earmarked uh, as a potential you know the dark horse for the grand slams a potential top 10 player um, i really liked his game and his the potential but last year i had noticed that he seemed to be going backwards rather than forwards um, and again he he plays a type of a type of tennis that i really believe can go far in today's tennis and uh, is is unique in a way because i think you know, the way tennis has evolved there's a little bit of too much of the same type of tennis and someone who serve, who can serve and volley and who can volley, I believe can go very, very far in today's game. So um, basically I I was aware that he was finishing up with his coach um, and was still uh, not playing well, not winning matches. And, And I basically just made that approach to him um, to say that I was interested in, in uh, working with him. And, um, you know, it took, took a couple of months of uh, just some contact back and forth. And towards the end of 2016, he had uh, got back to me and said that he really wanted to try and, try and um, work together. And, yeah, so 2017, we've started, you know, spending some time together and trying to rework his game and his view, um, and just bolster his 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 ability. And um, yeah, so we're we're, we're moving forward.
0: Oh, that's great. I mean, you guys already had a great win back in Indian Wells with uh, the match against Andy Murray. Uh, but it's a pretty nice story that you reached out, and uh, I think no one can be better than you to answer this question. Uh, a lot of the notion in people like us, like the fans, is it's hard to keep a balance between a successful uh, singles and doubles career. Yeah. And you've been through that rigor yourself. Yep. So you think uh, someone like Vasek, when you said his singles game uh, fell back or suffered, you think was it like a combination that he was prioritizing doubles more or how does that work?
1: <clears throat> another, another good question. I um, obviously you know was aware that Vasek uh, is a quality doubles player as well. And, and, I'm, and I'm pleased to say that he's a Wimbledon cha- champion. He won the doubles with Jack Sock, uh, I think it was in 2015. Um, and, and he's, he's performed very well on the doubles court. And that's, that was something that I, I believe he was attracted to me with that. He, he was aware that I balanced the singles and doubles, um, side. Um, I'd like to believe very well. Todd and myself, we were both top 20 singles players and, um, you, you know, had a, had a, a extremely successful doubles career. So, um, I, uh, you, you know, looking back and having having subsequent discussions with Vasek, I, I, I don't I don't believe that he had prioritised doubles, and that was something that I just affirmed with him that never at any stage with uh, with myself was I prioritising doubles. Um, Todd and I certainly every week we turned up at a tournament and any Grand Slam with the idea that we were going to perform. Uh, to our best in singles first, and the doubles was actually quite secondary for us. Um, it's just the way that it, it turned out and happened, I guess, quite frequently is that um, the doubles results shone so bright for us that there was a tendency at times to people, fans, or even other players to forget that we actually did okay in the singles court. So I, I really tried to promote that to to Vasek, that if he was turning to me, to help him with his doubles that I wasn't going to actually take the role with him um, that if he was coming to me and please help me with my singles career and my game uh, to rejuvenate it to reboot it, and then also help me with my doubles, that was what was appealing and uh, um, so we we really went for, you know started working on that. Um, I've seen him play a whole lot more on the singles court than the doubles. I think doubles again is secondary to a lot of players um, that playing that are playing singles and doubles. Um, it helps the doubles playing a lot of doubles helps develop a good singles career. Playing a lot of singles help can help um, you become a, a very good doubles player. So I've just encouraged him to try and keep playing as many doubles tournaments as possible. Um, and and we're going to keep working on his singles career. It's just unfortunate this year um, already that he, he had an agreement to play with Radek Stepanek, um, and uh, Stepanek has sub- subsequently uh, been off the tour since the early part of the year. He just recently underwent a back operation and is out for a number of months. So they haven't. He ha- Vashek hasn't played a whole lot of doubles this year, unfortunately, and given. That we're playing at the moment, a few challenger tournaments. It doesn't really benefit him to play doubles at these tournaments because it it doesn't. Even if he wins the tournament, it doesn't really help his ranking at all. Um, and it would only be a matter of just you, you know if he was a, a desiring some extra matches. So um, I know that a lot of a lot of players I've been approached at some of these challenger tournaments by some of the players asking me if uh, is is Bashek playing doubles this week because they can they they're aware that he's a <clears throat> a quality doubles player they know his record and uh you know i've just said look I, you know there might be a you know a couple of tournaments along the way that he he'll play some uh doubles at these challenges but you know really the decision lies with him so um but yeah yeah it's just you know i i think it, it, to help him develop as a singles player it is for any player actually um i i much prefer for them to be playing doubles as well, because I think it it, it can only enhance their uh, chances of becoming a better singles player.
0: So let's switch to the challenger tour since you guys are on the road. Uh, Just fill us uh, up for our audience and even myself. How do you guys pick uh, the schedule? Like what challenger to play? Because right now, if I'm not mistaken, there are three challenges going on in different parts of the world. I think States, Europe, and then uh, in Asia. So how do you guys go about the scheduling for challengers?
1: Yeah. Well, um, you know for for ideally you, you know Vashek's um Vashek for a number of years before I started working with him so even if you go back to 2013 2014 and 2015 i mean he was he was ranked inside the top 50 in singles um and playing the the tour level tournaments you, you know full time um we're only playing the challenges right now it's because of you know his results in 2016 were you know, he won, you know, less than 10 matches all, all last year. So his ranking has taken a, a severe dive and, and, uh, you, you know, he, it bottomed out, um, to 130. So, you know, he's, he's basically, um, forced to, um, drop down and play challenger tournaments. Um, he could choose to go and play qualifying at some tour events. Um, but it's my belief that, you know, playing qualifying at some of the bigger tournaments when you are trying to work on your game, you're trying to build confidence. Um, I, don't, I don't see what the benefit is of playing qualifying and perhaps losing in qualifying, you know, week after week. I, I think that's a – it hurts your confidence even more. So um, when we – after spending probably a few weeks together and trying to map out a schedule – um, you know, I tabled the idea of, you know, um, why not why not consider dropping down to play some challenger tournaments where he would be in the main draw and maybe seeded, and has that opportunity to just pick up a lot of matches um and 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 if he could win matches learn how to win those matches again and build confidence that way that I, I felt that was the really the way forward for him into um rebooting his his singles um career um and as as you said there's there are a lot of opportunities that the the tour these days there there's so many uh tournaments level of tournaments that a, a player can choose from um, so we, you know, basically sat down and and just worked out. Um, does you know? Does Vasek want to? You know, I asked him. Do you want to play on clay? Um, you, you know, what what surf surface um, benefits your game most? What are you more comfortable on? Um, and and he responded that um, you know he he felt if he's after to if he if the goal is to play more matches and to win as many matches right now. Um, it might be best to play on hard courts um, in Asia. He has a, he has a history of of doing well um, in in Asia on hard courts, and uh, um, so rather than play in the US um, on some of the clay courts that they have there, which is green clay, um, he he wasn't actually um, entertaining that he doesn't mind playing on European clay, but again, he didn't want to, um, that would only be about f- amount to four or five weeks and he didn't want to, we didn't have time actually to do a, a pre-season on clay um, to work on his game for those clay court tournaments. So I guess it it really was just knocking down the numbers um, and, you, you know, just I guess logically working it out that the best option for him was to come to Asia for, three to four weeks, and um, play on a surface that he loves and, um, you know, hopefully win matches. So he got off to a good start in Taiwan, making the semifinals. Um, This week he's still alive and hopefully will go deep into the tournament and, uh, you know, next week in Seoul, possibly the week after in Busan. So it really is just a... um, a path at the moment that perhaps he's not, you know, I'm sure Vasek wishes and desires to be playing the the ATP tour events, but it's just reality says his ranking is not high enough at the moment for him to play those tournaments. So um, the, the reason that we're here playing challenger tournaments in Asia.
0: We wish him the best and hopefully, you know, we start seeing him back in main draws. Uh, now let's switch, you know, to your illustrious career. Uh, There's a very typical question I ask everyone who comes on our podcast. Uh, coming from Australia, you have great history uh, for the game there. So what was your background? How did you get into tennis uh, as, a, as a kid?
1: Um, I got into tennis. Um, I was my – ho- my whole family played tennis. Uh, my dad was a – he had a, a job, a full-time job, but he was um, the – he looked after a tennis club. Um, he was basically the captain uh of, of the tennis club, the president of the committee. And um so on the weekend um to pick up a little extra money, he did he he was coaching. And uh so I you know, as far back as I can remember, you know, on in uh the on the weekend, on Saturday mornings, I, I would be down at the tennis courts um d- taking a tennis lesson with my dad. Um Saturday afternoons I would be playing competition um, uh, at the club and then on Sundays he did private lessons and and so it was really the, the, the weekend was the time that I could get to spend with my father um, given that he was working during the, the week um, and I didn't get to see him a whole lot. So the weekends that was what I gravitated towards and um, my mum played tennis on the weekends. I've got two older sisters who also played a lot of tennis, so it was really like a family atmosphere, a family outing to go down to the tennis club um, in Adelaide, where I'm from, and you know just just really socialize with other families who were keen on tennis um, so I have a a lot of pleasant fun memories of a of a youngster, um, you know just the weekends being outside and being with my mates and playing tennis and having lessons with my dad. Um and that just gradually grew into uh, as I got older, um I, I entered some tournaments. So on school holidays I was off playing tournaments uh, whenever I could. Um, still coached by my father. And um in the end I guess uh you know, I was still at school. Um and it you know I think it's a fine line and it's you know I, I kind of laugh now or, or smile to myself because I'm, I'm perhaps in that same position with my wife um, you know we've, we've got two daughters um, both play a little bit of tennis um, and we're just encouraging them to play play for fun um, you know you don't have to be a, a tennis professional by any means, but just to be able to go out and hit some tennis balls is what we'd be keen for them to do. Um, and I'm of the opinion that I, I'd rather be a father to my daughters. I don't want to be their tennis coach because I think it it, it straddles a very fine line. Um, and if I'm their tennis coach, then it's hard to be their father, and vice versa. So I I kind of look back at the 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 way that my dad um, was trying his best to be my tennis coach and still be my father and have to, you know, discipline me when when uh, it was needed. And um, it, it just got to a stage, I think, that I realised and pe- pe- perhaps he realised, I know my mother realised that it was best that it got just got to a stage that it was time to actually move on from my dad being my tennis coach, um, that it was getting just too difficult um, for him to be my father and my tennis coach, so um, I just started to have some lessons with someone else um, in Adelaide, and then eventually, you know, in my last year of high school, um, you, you know, I had a uh, my father knew of um, a, a tennis coach who used to play on the international circuit, um, and he asked him uh, whether he would take take me away to to Europe and learn how to play tennis. Um, take me to the next level. And, uh, you know, that's when I was 17. As soon as I finished high school, I went away with um, a guy by the name of Barry Phillips Moore. Um, when he played, he was in the top 20 on the singles tour. And um, he was from Adelaide. He knew my father very well. He and his wife used to take um, players that perhaps weren't supported within the system by Tennis Australia, which was someone like myself, but he would take players away to Europe and just help them develop their their games, learn learn how to play on European clay. So, you know, for three or four years, um, I was away for seven, eight months in Europe, just learning how to play tennis on clay and developing a game. And that's that's really how I got started you know progressing um before I started to play on the tour
0: so is it safe to assume uh, that while growing up grass was the foundation surface for you uh, being an Aussie it
1: it, it was it was there, you know we we had there was a lot more grass court tournaments back then <laughs> than there are now in in adelaide unfortunately but <clears throat> it it yeah that we we had there was a grass court season, which is obviously the summer in the summer for us. Um, and when winter came around, I mean, you moved to hard courts. Um, but there, there was a, a, it was probably evenly balanced. Um, and I think it's interesting that you say that because I, I look back now. I, I mean, I, the tennis club that I belong to, that my family belonged to was in the hard, it was, it was actually called the hard court association. And there was a grass court association, and a lot of those grass courts were in a city um, around the city of Adelaide, where where I lived was near the beach, um, and it was it was just known as the hard court association, um, and there was about five or six um, associations like that in Adelaide, in and around Adelaide, but it was only when uh, you know at certain times of the year that you know those other tournaments were played on the grass so you know I, I i really did grow up on hard courts but i mean you you just you just played on grass as well and uh you know so i had i obviously had that fascination um with with grass very early on and of course when you you, you know back back in australia i mean we do have a great heritage with grass courts and you know when wimbledon came around i i, I mean i my parents used to allow me to stay up very late to watch Wimbledon. I mean, Wimbledon was has always been promoted to me from a, a very early age that that was the tournament to play in. Um, you were, If you ever got the chance to play at Wimbledon on grass, you were considered to be a pretty good tennis player. Um, and if you were able to win a Wimbledon title, well, when, wow, that was it. So, um, you, you know, grass... And Wimbledon has, has been in my psyche for a very, very long time.
0: That clears one notion because I always wondered, being uh, like in India, you know, we followed the sport like crazy. And uh, I wondered your generation, you and maybe another player like Darren Cahill, was there any resentment when you uh, when Australian Open uh, decided to switch from Kuyong to the Flinders Park hard course? I thought Aussies probably would think grass was the best chance to uh, win a major. Yeah, well,
1: two majors really, because uh, um, you know, with Wimbledon um, still on the grass and and the Australian Open being played at Kooyong on the grass, um, I you know I wasn't, um, and I was a part of that that era or that generation, along with Darren Cahill um, and and a number of others that we participated in the transition. And I, and I guess even the selection of a, of a different surface. Um, so uh, I, I guess, I mean, without going into too great a detail, I mean, the basic philosophy was that, you know, tennis was evolving. Um, and if tennis in Australia wanted to move forward with the times, um, it was a decision was made that we we needed to really move away from grass, um, that, we had to be uh, had to be aware that a lot of other tournaments um apart from the Australian summer circuit and apart from Wimbledon were played on other surfaces and slower courts and you, you know so the bulk of a, of the tennis year was not played on grass um so we needed to develop players that could actually play on slower surfaces instead of the faster low-bouncing courts uh, like at the Australian Open in Wimbledon. Um, So, you know, and and again, that that was my philosophy when I went away to Europe. My coach was, you you know, always um, uh, passing on that knowledge of you will never lose your ability to play on grass, but you need to build uh, the ability to play on clay courts or the ability to play on slower hard courts. For you to be a better player all round, um, and and so uh, whilst whilst you know now um, certainly in Australia we develop very different players from the time that I grew up in, um, and I, there are moments that I look back and I I, I wish even when I've coached uh, some younger Australians, uh, I've been, you know, the captain of the junior Davis cup team a number of years. Um, and I look at these young players, 15, 16 years of age, and they're constantly staying on the baseline. And, uh, you know they struggle to transition from the baseline to the net and I shake my head saying what w- what is going on you're Australian you should be able to volley you should know that that uh you know that's that's the place to win from is is up at net but um you know it's it's you know it's just like different surfaces you have to have different players um with different games and um yeah that's it's just the way it is now
0: okay let's talk some more Wimbledon now. Uh, my first memory of Mark Woodford, because I was a, such a tennis geek, is a match I remember from 1988 against Lendl. I didn't watch that match because in India, we only used to get semis and finals live on TV. Uh-huh. So I saw that in news highlights. Yes. I think it's fourth round, ten eight in the fifth. Uh, what do you recall of that match? And was that the match that gave you belief that you could compete with the big boys? Mm.
1: Yeah, that that was that was certainly a, a, a crucial moment in my career. Um it's not to say that I was at a juncture of questioning myself, but it it, it arrived at a, at a at a time that it it propelled me to believe. So you, yes, you had it right that it it um, opened my eyes that I could compete with the very best. Um, and certainly, Lendl. I think he was the number one or two seed that year, even though his Wimbledon record was not not great. Um, but it just the atmosphere, you know, just a to walk onto the court with Ivan Lendl on court number one um to a packed crowd, um that the noise to me was deafening. Um to be able to get that close to to someone um as as highly rated as as Ivan was um was huge. Um and the fact that I you know I got to, to match point um and I I you know still remember that he thumped up he thumped down a, a serve, um, and I I um, I know he served and volleyed, and I I tried you know I got the return back, and he hit, um, uh, well he hit a he hit a tremendous volley because it landed just inside the baseline, um, and of course I guess in my mind <clears throat> if I had to play it all in slow motion again I I was hoping that. You know, miss the volley, please miss the volley, <laughs> and please go long. <laughs> uh, but it landed just inside the baseline, and uh, I missed the, the, uh, the passing shot. Um, but um, you know, it's not to say that the match ended there. I mean, I still, I still, you know, um, you know, tried to compete, but uh, in the end, it, it didn't, uh, didn't come my way. But I, I certainly, at the end of the tournament, uh, felt like. That, that just, it, yeah, it gave me the belief and, and, uh, you know, it helps when you've got good people around you. So I was still working with Barry Phillips Moore, um, at the time. He was still my coach and, and, uh, you know, to be able to put it into perspective of even though I lost the match, it was a victory. Um, there were, there were, there were victories in many ways for me. Um, the, the scoreboard obviously showed that I, I came into second place, but there were, there was much more. Um, to it than that so i was able to um later that year uh, as well as in 1989 is when you know my singles started to really uh, bubble and uh, started to post significant results but um um yeah that that was that was certainly um a crucial a crucial a vital match for me in my singles career
0: and uh, again let's stick with Lendl for one more question what do you recall uh while playing him, uh, his style? Because when I was reading, uh, he was seen as one of the guys who introduced, you know, fitness levels and, you know, training, uh, power tennis compared to John McIndoe. And then since then, tennis has become more physical. Mm -hmm. Could a guy like Lendl, how was he compared to guys like today on tour who are playing? You know, I... um... He,
1: he certainly was a a guy that brought in that, that um mentality of being physically fit and physically strong and, and he thumped the ball, uh not only on his serve, uh, but from the forehand. Um he certainly could give the backhand a bit of a a bit of a, a crack, but it was it was the serve and the forehand. And then you looked up the other end and it never looked like he was tired. Um you, you know, it uh in extreme conditions whether it was heat um, or the length of the match um, he just he looks so strong still yeah it it uh, and uh, you know along with the power game um I, I think I think his type of game would stand up to today I think I think there's a lot of players out out there today that probably lo- used Lendl as a benchmark as a as a type of as a base like like that's what I want to develop my game on. Um, it, it certainly, when I, when I came off the court, um, it, it, it showed, you know, pr- probably a quality that it showed me was that under the immense pressure and the possibility of losing the match, he actually stepped up to the plate, um, and, uh, Look, he served and volleyed and hit it, and hit a good volley. And that was generally not uh, an area that he was comfortable playing. Um, you, you know, he was more of a a big serve, and he would wait for the return to come back, and then he'd hit a a, a big forehand afterwards. So he it showed me that the mental his mental side, the discipline that you know it, it was important for him right at that time even though the fear of losing uh, was quite quite strong, he knew he had to play a serve and volley to um, to stay in the match. Um, so, uh, you, you know, his, he, he was so strong mentally as well, very stubborn. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think his type of game would, would stand up to the challenge today.
0: Now, does your generation, when you meet, you know, uh, players from your era, you guys ever wonder what you guys would have done if you had the same uh, string technology, which obviously has made all these rackets more potent than ever, <laughs> or is it or is there a trade-off? Because in your era, courts were faster, so you don't you didn't did not need this kind of a lethal racket.
1: You know, I'm I'm probably a, a, a little um, a little different. Where you know, maybe my my answer or my my view on that might be a little different from. Some other players simply, and I and I only say that is because I I used a very unique racket. Um, my string pattern was was very different, um, and I guess you know players from my generation might might think, well, yeah, he that was that was a, a really extreme uh, tennis racket that he was using. So um, you know, again, my coach was um, from a generation that was, um, around when the double strung racket was brought into the sport. And, and in fact, my coach was one of the, one of the major players in that, in that frame, in that string pattern. And he, I, I kind of call him a racket technician or a racket whiz. Um, he had, Developed a, a very crude version of that double strung racket, and that, that was something that I was using. So basically, you know, my, the string was a lot thicker. I mean, I, I used a 1.6 millimeter string, um, and my string pattern was 12 by 14. Um, so, you know, the main, an average string width today is like maybe 1.25 millimeter, and the string pattern is generally a um, 18 by 20. So you, you know mine, mine had less strings. Um, but it, it created a lot of a lot of spin. Um, it didn't sacrifice power, but it just created a lot more spin. and um, that to me translates as control. So um, you know today's there's a lot of talk about the technology today about the, the rackets, um, helping the players when they're when they're sent out at end range, that they're still able to control the ball. Um, the string is 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 uh, they've made advancements in string um, and and how it's helped guys like Nadal uh, still hit with as much spin uh, when he's under a lot of pressure and off balance uh, at end range. Um, and I, I you know kind of feel like that you know the racket and the string that I was using, uh, back when I was playing in the '90s, um, did just that anyway.
0: Let's talk about Todd Woodbridge. How did that partnership come along? I mean, one of the greatest doubles partnerships ever.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, Todd. Todd and I. Uh, we. Um, Todd's five years younger than me, um, so I um, was aware of Todd. Uh, when he was coming out of juniors, um, obviously, I, 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 you know, I'm sure it still happens now in Australia that, you know, they're kind of the older or or uh, the current generation, they're aware of the younger generation coming up. Um, so I was aware of Todd, um, and we actually had the same agent, um, and I c- could see that his results were starting to to build up, um, uh, and and improve, and I guess just the, the timing, um. You know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, yeah. I just really, the timing of it was, um, was, was a blessing. Um, and, and that, that came about when I was finishing, uh, up with John McEnroe. I'd, I'd played about 12 months with, with McEnroe and, uh, he had sat me down. Um, I think it was a tournament in Cincinnati. And he explained to me, we are kind of a, a, a apologizing that he didn't think that he, he couldn't see himself playing doubles every week. And even though we had played, uh, you know, a, a number of tournaments together and were, and, and we'd won a number of tournaments together, um, he felt that it was probably best that, um, I look for another partner. Because he wasn't going to be playing frequently in doubles, he was obviously going to keep playing singles, but um, he he didn't want to to keep playing doubles. Um, and so he basically, you, you know, just said, I, "I, you know, my advice to you, Mark, would be: you are a you are a, a a great doubles player. Why don't you play with an Australian? I think you should also look for a right hander. I think you should also look for someone who's younger." Um, I think you should look for someone that you know you feel that you could play Davis Cup with for Australia. Is there anyone that fits that description? Um, and you know, I was sitting there thinking to myself, "Hmm, damn, this is not a good situation <laughs> because I didn't want to. I didn't want to stop playing with McEnroe because I, I mean, that was that was one of the greatest experiences for me was to play with, uh, and I still say he was the greatest doubles player um, in in the sport. Um, so I, I wanted to keep playing with him as, and learn as much as I could. So I was disappointed on, on the one side, but he had given me a task that I felt, well, okay, that's fine. I've got to move on. Um, and probably within 24 hours, the the one name that when I looked at the list you know, of potential partners from Australia – the one person that kind of stuck out was Todd Woodbridge. Um, and I had heard that he was mm, probably looking at moving on. He, he, he had a, a partnership with Jason Stoltenberg, who is his age, who he grew up playing juniors with. Um, and I'd heard that they were on the, on the brink of um, not playing together. Um, and... Yeah that so I I ended up um you, you know seeing Todd and and asked him uh whether he was interested in playing an event um together and at the at that particular time I was also I didn't have a coach um I I was actually traveling with a fitness trainer trying to work on my physical fitness and Todd ha- did have a tennis coach but was on the lookout to work with a physical trainer so it's kind of like this jigsaw. Um, I was I wanted to be coached by someone. Um, so in the end, when Todd and I played the first tournament together, we kind of said, well, hey, well, if we pair up, you know, you can use Ray Ruffles as your tennis coach. And, and I said, well, then why don't you use the physical trainer whose nickname was Muddy Waters? Why don't you use Muddy as your trainer? And then we could build a team. We can, you know... Um, so that's that's really how um, the jigsaw was placed together, and uh, we we played we we performed dismally in the first tournament. That we lost first round. Um, it was a shocking result, <laughs> and uh, we, we we at least we came off. And I, I laugh now because I think we laughed at the time when we came off the court because we were like oh, we could do a lot better than that, and. Um, and sure enough, the second tournament that we played together, we reached the semifinals, and uh um there was it was a very distinct feeling that in that second tournament there was something very special between us. There was a lot of a lot of trust, a lot of intuition. Um and and so I go back to thinking, you know, how smart was John McEnroe to uh kind of, you know, he he picked he picked out all the qualities. Of Todd Woodbridge without mentioning Todd's name, if that makes sense.
0: That's brilliant.
1: <laughs> so, um, we, we, um, yeah, we, 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 we continued on. And, um, so that, that was probably, I think that was at the end of 1990. So I, I, I think if I, if I've got my, my timeline correct, I think Todd and I, our first full year was 1991. And um, so we we actually played two tournaments together at the end of 1990, um, and uh, that that kind of put it placed it together. And then in um, we won the Australian Open together. So in a, in about our I think our fourth tournament together, we won the Australian Open. So that really cemented um, the idea that there was something fantastic that existed between us.
0: Is it a different mindset? To play doubles on clay, uh, is it a different beast? Because I know in singles, serve and volley can only go so far on clay. Yeah. How does that matter in doubles? Mm.
1: That that was <laughs> maybe I'm not the best one to answer <laughs> because uh, uh, because that was a, uh, I guess the uh, the ultimate question um, that that really Todd and I uh, on the doubles court we struggled to find the answer for. Um, we, we struggled to, to win the French Open. It was really, it was only in the last year that we secured the French Open to finally win all four majors. Um, and it's interesting because I, I had actually assumed, um, or probably presumed that the French Open would have been one of our first t- major tournaments that we would have won. Um, I, I felt very comfortable on clay as, as I said earlier, um, in the interview that I spent, you know, four years, uh, learning to play on clay. I I didn't play on any other surface except clay. Um, and I, I, I mean, I enjoyed playing in Europe. I enjoyed, you know, the different clay that they have over there. Um, and, and I learned how to stay on the baseline. I learned how to hit with spin, um, You know, uh, might not have been that great at it, but I I certainly was was comfortable on the surface. So that's where my presumption that that the French Open wouldn't have been that difficult for us to achieve. Um, But year after year, uh, you know, we we turned up and we had some good years there. Um, we, We 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 kept with our same tactic. I mean, there was no there was no reason for us to. Alter our game. I mean, we didn't have big serves. Um, we we moved very well. We volleyed uh, great. We returned great. Um, we we had uh, we knew the geography of the court, um, but you know, may, maybe in the end, I think it was more uh, the psychological barrier for us rather than it was it, w- it wasn't a physical thing. It wasn't that our game. Didn't translate onto the clay. It was more that wow, the hit, there goes another French Open that we haven't uh, achieved. I mean, we'd won everything else out there, and each year it kept like it was like the pressure kept building up. Ah, oh, you know, yeah, they're the only the only Grand Slam the Woodies haven't won is that French Open, and and, and it it just became a bit of a burden for us. But um, um, you know, there was never, I guess, I never. And Todd, we never lost that belief that it was, it was, uh, it was possible for us. Um, and perhaps, you know, heading into that last year of, uh, of my career before I retired, maybe, maybe there was some semblance of, you know what? I have to accept that my career might finish without winning the French Open. And perhaps that, that was enough for me to relax and help Todd relax. And we went into that last year at that of Roland Garros. Um, you, 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 know, we, we survived. I mean, we, we had some very difficult matches along the way that we perhaps in the past might not have come through, but we did and, uh, eventually went on to win the, the French Open. So, you know, there was, um, which, which was perfect. It was, I mean, icing on the cake. Uh, it was the last jewel in the crown for us, but, it was, um, it took a, a lot of effort just to get to that stage. And, um, you, you know, I I mean, it is what it is, but uh, y- yeah, <laughs> it's very, very difficult. I, I think with us, because we maybe didn't have big, powerful serves, we had to work so much harder on the clay courts. And perhaps that was contributing to the reason why we didn't have as much success on the clay like we did at, other tournaments on and other surfaces in doubles.
0: In your career, you've played a lot of great doubles players. Uh, being an Indian, I'm a little biased. So, where would you rate uh, Leander Pays amongst the great doubles players you've seen and played against? <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay, so is that you're asking me to just judge Leander or are you asking me to judge Pays and Bupati as a team? <laughs> uh,
0: no, Leander has played with many partners. So, I'm just uh, focusing because a lot of people believe. He has great hands in the net, so I want to hear from a legend like you how you rate him as a doubles player. Okay, um, without without it,
1: a, a, quite a, an amazing uh, a champion a champion tennis player. Full stop is Leander Paes. Um, uh, you know, I, I I kind of I uh, I, I guess the, the reason why I say Pays and party is because that's wh- where you know really I I became aware of both of them as a team. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't just Leander. You know, it was Pays and Big Party because they were um, a threat to the Woodies. Um, we knew that they were um, probably one team, one of one of maybe two um, that we had to be very, very um, careful when we played. We we had to expect a lot from ourselves. Um, because we knew they had the ability as a team to play at our level, um, and so it was, you know, for me, Leander, you know, to break break them down. Uh, you know, Leander certainly had had a great presence on the court. Um, his confidence was 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 big, um, great belief, and he was super quick around the baseline. Great reflexes, great volleys. Um, the one, I guess the one area or a couple of areas that Todd and I would focus on was, you know, he, his serve, um, we felt was vulnerable as well as his returns. Um, they, they were inconsistent. When we had, you look at Bupati as his partner, the weak areas for Leander were the strengths for Mahesh. And that's what made them such a formidable team. Um, they were able to blend well together. They they covered each other's weaknesses up nicely. So you know Mahesh, you know would consistently put in these great returns. Um, he had a bigger serve as well. So when he landed that big serve, we had to deal yeah, with Leander being up around net the whole time, putting these volleys away um so it was it was a it was just frustrating to play and and then if Leander caught fire and I mean that caught fire as in you know he he wasn't missing serves and he was actually making a lot of returns um it you know that's when Pays and Bupati were um such a, a brilliant team so um You you know Leander. You know, good good on him. Uh, You you know, to have a career where he's able to have played partnered with so many partners um, and have pick up so many victories is phenomenal. Um, I, you know, I I mean, I was just different, uh, and and I, you know, Todd was a a little different as well. We we believed in trying to forge uh, a partnership. And trying to have that partnership last a lengthy time, that that was more beneficial than changing partners every few years uh, or um, every few months. Um, so um, it's just diff- different philosophy, but it doesn't take anything away from the magnificent career that Leander pays has has had and still. Still out there playing now. I mean, it's quite, quite amazing.
0: But yeah, you're right. Uh, it would have been something if they had continued. It's a but- shame.
1: It's a shame, actually, that they, that they, um, you know, split up. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I mean, just taking it one step further, I think that's where doubles today, unfortunately, is, has, uh, uh, you know, maybe lost its allure because we don't have the, these great teams that have had longevity. Um, and Pays and Bupati were, were certainly, if they, you know, if they could have worked out their differences, I, I think they would have had, you know, many more successes. So, in in one sense, <laughs> and maybe for for Todd and I, um, it was good that they didn't work out out their their differences because <laughs> we we felt that that when they played together, they were very very difficult to play against. But when they played with different people, it was a different kettle of fish. <laughs>
0: So as we wrap this up, a couple more questions. I know you have uh, coaching responsibilities to carry on. Yeah. So how do you see the men's uh, landscape at the top? Uh, Federer is resurgent. You know, everybody has their take on his comeback. Nadal's dominating clay. Andy Murray and Djokovic still not up to the level. What do you see for the next few months uh, on French Open, leading mm. up to French Open?
1: I I, um, I don't uh, – I uh, okay, start, start with Federer. Just phenomenal. Phenomenal that, uh, you know, the comeback after – what six months out of the game last year to, to step right back in and win uh, the Australian Open, Indian Wells, and Miami—just phenomenal. Um, but the you know the door was ajar. Um, the the Djokovic had had dropped his um, level uh, or focus. Um, the same could be said with Murray, um, and Nadal was also coming back from injury. So. There was a great opportunity for Federer, um, and and he took it. Um, I, I personally, I don't see him winning the French Open. Um, I, I'm I'm strongly believe that if, even though as great as what he is, it's impossible to um, win the French Open without playing any lead up clay court tournaments. Um, so. I I think there's some there's some part of me that wants to say, you know, even though he has entered the French Open, I'm not sure that he will actually play. That's my opinion. I don't believe he will play the French Open, um, and if he does, I, I just don't see him being there in the the finals. You, you know, I think uh, you know you look at the other three um, as as um, you know great bet uh, stronger chances of winning the French Open uh you know Nadal's back to you know on a surface um and and winning on the clay courts already I think Andy Murray you know it's it's not unusual for him to you know to suffer some of the the, the losses on uh the clay court events leading up to the French Open but I think by the time Paris starts I think he's going to be right there with a chance to to win the French Open and I think in his career, he certainly end up with a French Open title, um, and you've got Djokovic who is scratching, clawing to try and get back to that um, high level that he showed for years and years, um, where it just seemed like in those big matches, big moments, he was he was um, uh, superior than um, than you know the rest of the, the players out there. So I, I think exciting, exciting, you, you know, next you know, a couple of months, and then, uh, you know, and then how quickly it just turns around, uh, you know, the French Open finishes and all the focus goes on to the grass. And, uh, you know, I I, I think then you've got Murray and Federer probably as the two standouts uh, come Wimbledon time.
0: And we can conclude this interview with your comment on the Aussie twin towers, I like to call them. (laughs) Kyrgios seems to have you know, research this year and is playing with more composure after the CEPI match in Melbourne. Yep. And the second part of the question is, uh, what do you make of uh, Tomek's continuous slide? I know he's won two matches. In East, uh, I think it's Istanbul. Him, where do you see him going?
1: And I, and I know you said the Twin Towers, and I, I always like to, to add in that there's actually um, a trio um, of uh, Towers. um uh, with, Yeah, Tanasi Ten- Kokonakis, um I, You know, unfortunately, you know, Tenasi's had some injury uh, concerns that have kept him out for, wow, I think it's over 12 months now um, out of the game. But he, to me, is certainly of the same calibre as Nick Kyrgios. Um, but it's just that, you know, he's had to struggle with injuries. So the potential's there for Kokonakis. And uh, hopefully he'll get back on the court soon and, and start to join um Kyrgios and Tomic up in the inside the top fifty. Um but going back to Kyrgios, I, I you know it's just I, I'm so so pleased for him that uh emotionally he he seems to have a a better grasp on his um on his emotions. Um I, I think he's a lot more stable um on the court. Um uh but, you know he has it seems like he's just matured. And, and it's not, you know, and I, I, I don't like to always use that term that, oh, wow, he's growing up and he's maturing because uh, it, it just, this sport, I mean, it, it really, it asks a lot of questions of you as an individual. And, uh, you know, you have your good days, you have your bad days. It's how you manage those moments. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think there have been occasions where I've, sh- you know, probably like a lot of people, I've sh- shook my head in disappointment with um, the actions of Nick Kyrgios. Um, I had that belief um, that if he could manage his emotions, um, without a doubt, his calibre of tennis is is way up there, um, and uh, the potential to win Grand Slams, to the potential to, you know, um, be in the top ten, top five. Push for number one is is a, a possibility, but not not if he doesn't get a grasp of his emotions. Um, and it it just it does seem over the last five months that he is doing an, a, an incredibly better job at handling himself. And I I give him a lot of credit for that because it's not easy when you step onto the court as the number one player in your country. And the tennis tour is also talking about how you are a part of the next generation um, of uh, champion tennis players. You know, you're under the spotlight constantly. So, um, but he, I, I just I, I'm excited for the rest of the year for Curios and and for years to come. Um, for for Tomic, um, you know, again at times I, I shake my head and wonder. What on earth is going on? <laughs> um, and, uh, um, it just, it's, it's, um, you, you, you know, I think sometimes the, these younger players, it doesn't matter whether they're from Australia or from another country, you know, they take it for granted that tennis is going to be there for them day after day. And, you know, it takes, it takes years to get to the top of the sport. And it can disappear so very quickly in a blink of an eye. Um and it can disappear within, you know, a days, in a within a week, after all that work that goes into getting to the top. Um and I just fear that Tomek has maybe lost his focus, um, that, that the commitment's just not quite the same and uh, you know, um is just is just in a bit of a struggle at the moment. And it's not to say that the desire won't come back. Um, I hope it does because he definitely has the ability um, to be up there. But I think, as it's shown in the past, uh, you know, unless he <coughs> unless he really commits to it to improving his physical side, becoming fit uh, uh, stronger and fitter, um, you know, he he might not uh, be able to win the Grand Slams um, or reach the top ten um, like maybe Kyrios
0: um can well, that's uh that's very good wonderful uh having you here mark uh i know you're a busy man so hopefully you know uh we can we can do this again when you have time maybe during a grand slam pick your brain uh you know yes. on the ongoing meetings yeah, thank you uh, very much i it's
1: been uh fantastic I, I i appreciate it and uh some great questions there and and uh i i look forward to speaking with you again
0: thank you